Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Back to the Petronas Podcast. This is episode 94 of the Petronas Podcast. This is a, a Petronas Podcast special. It is an interjection of the normal cadence of the podcast because um, it is Monday, September 18th, 2023. And um, if you haven't noticed, oil prices are red hot and sizzling and just skyrocketing upward. And we are going to get into that today because there's a lot of commentary. And today, there was a couple things that happened. It is Monday, September 18th, 2023. And what happened today was that we saw the CEO of Chevron, Mike Worth, make some comments on Bloomberg with regards to oil prices and uh, um, basically said that he could see them touching $100 a barrel. I definitely think that helped impact the market in addition to um, the Saudi oil minister's comments at the World Petroleum Congress in, Cal in Canada as well. So there's a couple things going on that, that we'll get into. And there's also a lot of folks that have been late to the party in terms of trading this. If you've, I talk about this a lot with clients and in my presentations. So if you've seen them or, or you hear a, a podcast that I've given, which is a presentation, you'll hear me comment on the thinly traded volumes, which you no longer actually see on Bloomberg because they're not showing that data anymore. But before, when they had it, you would see WTI and you would see the traded volumes. And you can see, you can even go and see me group and see it. Whereas um, back in the day, we're talking, you know, 2 million, it might be 2 million now, it's it, shy of that. So if you're looking at these volumes, we're seeing those really come up now. Um, and that's partly what's going on is that you had a lot of folks that were sitting on the sidelines. Everybody's plowing into this trade now. Um, and you're hearing a lot of commentary about hedge funds getting in. Now, there is some comments also that we're getting to these technical limitations where maybe it is being overbought. Now, that being said, it is the supply side that's really driving this. And then obviously the trading elements that are coming into it that are moving these swings upward. So we are seeing oil prices right now. It is Monday evening, um, September 18, 2023, and we are seeing oil prices at WTI at a whopping 92.42. We are pressing a 90, $93 handle on WTI, which is just incredible in the rapid rise that we've seen. So obviously, this has been driven on the back of the Saudi and Russian oil cuts. And I think we have to be very careful with that because these are supply-driven cuts largely by the Saudis, not by the Russians. Um, but there's also some big things going on in the refining space and the diesel space. And if you are paying attention to your gasoline prices or particularly diesel prices at the pump, you'll notice that they've been north of $4, at least in Denver, for a while at several uh, at several gas stations. Um, so we're to some degree, we are seeing actually crude oil just catch up to where the the uh, refined refinery market has been, um, which we'll come back to in just a little bit. Um, but Brent is at 94.73, so nearly touching 95 Brent. And that spread, if you'll notice, is pretty damn narrow. Um, so if you're looking at we're, we're <laughs> you're looking under a $3 spread, that's very, very impressive. So that's telling us something as well. We normally have had a much, much wider spread. So that spread's very narrow. We're seeing Henry Hub um, notch up a little bit at 273. Um, and interest, interestingly enough, we have seen, um, in addition to when Mike Worth was, was talking today, he did make some comments with regards to LNG um, and resolving or trying to resolve issues going on within Australia. Um, Dutch TTF dollar per MMBTU, if you're looking at it on CME Group, it's showing 10 bucks right now, but the forward price is, is higher, so you're looking um, at a few dollars higher each consecutive month. 
So that is very interesting. It's it's ten dollars for October. Um, I'm looking at CME Group, and then uh, thirteen and change, thirteen fifty four for November. December's looking at fifteen. So we're seeing that ratchet higher. There are growing concerns. I think when we're talking about what is the winter months, what does winter look like um, for Europe? And any you know, as much as they have on, they talk about their storage volumes. They do not have the type of storage we have in in the U.S. I know I've talked about that before, but that's really serious. That the you know, the weather really saved Europe last uh, last winter um, and really over the course of the summer. And so now we're going to see what this winter really looks like and how that looks. All right. Keeping with this timestamp before we get off track, we'll come back to the Chevron comments and, and all that. Um, copper prices are 378. I, I don't think that, you know, when we're thinking about this dramatic rise in, in oil prices, we have to be very, very careful with what s- supply or demand and talking about the state of the economy, which we'll get into. Um, in this uh, red hot sizzling oil price episode, um, and then the ten year yield, four thirty. We're seeing some real, some real resilience in terms of the like two year, ten year. Um, the Fed is going to meet on Wednesday, so it's Monday today. Fed's going to meet on Wednesday. The market and commentators are expecting a hawkish pause. Um, you know, we, it wasn't. Months ago, this changes on a weekly basis, folks. But you know, pundits and analysts, depending on your jobs data, depending on your inflation data, um, depending on the stock market, everybody has a different read of good news being bad news, bad news being good news, etc. Um, and so, right now, the the thinking is it's going to be a hawkish pause, and that there'll be another there'll be another rate hike before the end of the year, likely in November, and then they'll just hold rates through the course of 2024. And then the question is, you know, if we have a recession, will they cut it? Look, it, it, we'll, we'll get into that as well. Um, but that has been incredibly resilient. And we've seen that flow back into mortgage rates. And if you just Google mortgage rates today, um, I, I think you need to be looking around at the, the houses around you and see if they're moving. But if you're looking at mortgage rates today, you're seeing 8%. So um, you can Google it and you'll see like 7.42%. But you are seeing on like, if you're doing a little more searching and Googling, you're looking at seeing... A, rates in the 8% range. So that means things are just not moving. We're not going to see things move steadily 8%. Now, certainly people are buying down points. I um, I mean, this was a beautiful weekend over the course of this past weekend in Denver. Um, and I've been, I walked around the dog and was studying like crazy, um, listening to podcasts and books and did a lot of walking several miles in the afternoon and evening. And so there were a lot of open houses this weekend, given really nice weather. And, you know, a, a couple of years ago during the COVID craziness and even well before COVID, you know, Denver is booming. And when you had an open house, it was just couple after couple after couple in these houses. And now it's a, you know, maybe a couple, maybe a person comes in. A lot lot of times it's folks like me. Um, I didn't go in, but a lot of times folks in the neighborhood just pop in. So I, I, and there are a lot of houses, um, a lot of houses on the market, Um, at least least in my neighborhood, there's a, um, as you're walking around in in a three mile radius, you see quite a few. So I encourage folks to take a look around them and see like how, how busy is their favorite restaurant? Um, and are these houses really moving? I am definitely seeing some clothes for sure. Um, it's taking longer time, but these are not the houses that are well north of a million are not closing. Um, and I think that's something uh, interesting because it tells you that the appetite for the folks that do have the money are buying it, uh, or maybe it's just maybe it's just not the right house at the right time. Um, but I'm wondering if those cash offers are changing because people are getting a little bit anxious. But certainly, if you are mortgaging something at a million dollars, this is just uh, it's just not affordable at this point. And I think a lot of folks, just like subprime auto loans and auto loans, a lot of folks probably are not getting approved at these at this eight percent range. Okay, so we got to talk about oil prices and. 
what are the two things that make up or prices? Well, there's three things. There really, there is the trading and the sentiment, and then there's there's supply and demand, and there's fundamentals. So I I think it is very interesting when you're listening to analysts and you're listening to pundits and you're listening to folks talk about this. You can't. I mean, certainly, if I was Mike Worth, I would probably say the same thing. Is that could we see a hundred dollar oil? Absolutely. Now I do think him being Mike Worth, the CEO of Chevron, he probably did help push oil prices up a little bit today. And certainly the comments by uh, the Saudi oil minister helped as well um, because we're and and but really this is the physical markets, right? So we're seeing this tightness in the physical markets that's weighing on obviously the actual market and then this catch up with re- on the refining side. So if you, the pressure on diesel, the pressure on gasoline and really the the output cuts that we've seen in the market, the Saudis are the ones that have led these output cuts, right? If you're looking at OPEC, the September monthly OPEC report, or you're looking at the um, September monthly IEA report, which you have to pay for, if you're looking at that, you're seeing Saudi oil production at actually just under 9 million barrels per day. So that's what they said they're going to extend. They started that cut, that million barrel day lollipop cut in July, and they said they're going to extend that through the end of the year. Now, the Russians came in and said that they would add they would cut, uh, they would extend their cuts by 300,000 barrels a day by the end of the year. We haven't really seen that materialize. And if you look at the IEA numbers from, if you look at IEA versus OPEC, they don't match up for actually um, production, the output from Russia. And Russia says it's exports, not the production. So it gets very confusing. I am not putting a lot of stock and weight into that. But I do think that when we talk about the refined product exports, that could be impacting the market. And I think that when we're thinking about what's the Saudis have already cut, um, and we'll talk about Iran increasing their production in a moment, but what the Saudis have already cut might be those barrels are problematic, right? If it is that if we're cutting medium, you know, medium grade barrels out of the market and we have a lot of light sweet, what we're having is a um, the demand for products right now is um, is not slated in everyone's favor. So in, in the US, if you're looking at product demand, we have seen some softness. So I, no matter how you square U.S. product supply, there's a little bit of softness. There's a little bit of softness just over from the price spike we had over the past year, a year or so, we've had a little bit of softness that's just we haven't gotten back to our 2021 highs from driving, a little bit of softness in gasoline, and then just some subdued softness in not a material downward trend, but some a little bit of softness in diesel. Now, that's been more than offset in the U.S. by the other oils category, um, which is probably some jet fuel as well. So lots of flying in the U.S., lots of flying all over all over the world. So we're definitely seeing that. Now in Europe, they drive a lot of diesel vehicles and they have a lot of diesel vehicles. So the diesel demand, we're hearing a lot of stuff out of Europe where they have not had enough diesel. Where um, And so the barrels that they're getting on the refining side are they're getting more gasoline. They're not getting as much distillate. Um, and so you're refining, when you refine a barrel of crude oil, you get a varying slate of products. And certain grades give you certain... It, can give you a little more distillate, can give you a little less, can give you more little gasoline, a little less. But if you are particularly on like a light sweet barrel out of the US, some of them are a little less on the distillate side. And that's why your heavy coking capacity in the Gulf Coast that refines that Canadian crude and really gets that bottom of the barrel, um, you, you can get a little bit more distillate, maybe a little bit more diesel out of that. And so this is where you get volatility in your prices and your spreads and discounts for light sweet versus heavy. Um, and so I think we've had this going on, and a lot of analysts are talking about this. We've had this sort of going on in the market. So the 
price for a barrel of diesel is well north. I mean, we're talking 120 or, or above on on a on a barrel dollar per barrel basis. So that's where the the crude market is just catching up with that. So you know, there's a lot of things that impacts the impact oil prices and refined product and refinery centers are one of them. And so, you know, there's three major refining hubs and it's, it's the Gulf coast in the U S because we have a very, we have a major intense complex refining system in the U S a lot of it with a lot of heavy coking capacity in, in the Gulf coast, Rotterdam, um, Netherlands and Singapore are the three major hubs. And so the supply and demand of both crude and product and the slates of type of crudes that are coming in, how quickly they're refining them. We have refinery maintenance, which we have had refining maintenance and refineries have been offline, then that can all impact this. Um, so take that in addition, take all this information in addition to, then you have these supply cuts that are just, you know, they went in in July, that extra million barrel day lollipop cut went into July, we're now in September. So the market's really starting to feel that. But I think that refined product stuff, that's where, um, you know, folks that are talking about that, they get into the really nitty gritty details when you're trading this, that matters a lot. Um, so if we're thinking about what's, what's in demand, where we have refining maintenance, the other thing to be thinking about refinery, refineries is that we do have a lot of refinery capacity coming online next year. And so, you know, we could see a, um, in the next coming years where Typically, when you have a lull in refining, you tend to have a period where you have overinvestment. Used to be like that in the U.S. for on the pipeline side, if you remember. I mean, whether it's the whether the Wilson Basin, Bakken crude didn't have enough pipeline capacity, and then all of a sudden you have finally you have too much. Thank God. Um, and DJ, same thing. Over you you overbuild on the pipeline side, um, and on the refining side, it takes longer. Um, but that's what's happening around the world, and so you do have a lot of projects slated to come online. But when you have this refinery maintenance, and in the U.S. in particular our refining capacity has not come back. We lost a million barrels a day refining capacity during COVID. That has not come back. That's largely out of California. But then you have fires on BP refineries, et cetera. Um, anything like if you have maintenance or anything, if Suncor goes down in Colorado when you only have a ref one refinery and you've had other small refineries in the Rockies go out over the course of COVID, cumulatively, this can really add up. And so I think in a period where you're demanding all this crude and, and um, people are driving, people are flying, and you have the demand, um, sometimes we we have to be careful with uh, that surge in demand. And I want to talk about that. I want to break down now that we've, we, I want to talk about supply really quickly with the numbers. And then I want to get into the demand side of why that, why that's really important in terms of the seasonality or, or this post COVID craziness and the inflation and why I think that really matters. Um, we are all seeing, so I'll just, let's just, I'm going to recap the, the OPEC report just for the OPEC production numbers. So we have this in context. So June of 2023, we were seeing Saudi Arabia at nine. So in June, they were just over nine million barrels a day. And then um, they're just under nine million barrels a day. In, or sorry, that's July. Um, they were just under 10 million barrels a day in June. They're nine, um, just over nine million barrels a day in July. So that's when we really saw that. And then in August, we're seeing at, uh, according to OPEC figures, that Saudi Arabia was under nine million barrels per day. But that they're showing that Iran is three million barrels per day. Uh, 3 million barrels per day. That's really high because that's nearly a, uh, that's a couple hundred thousand barrel day growth in a span of months. So as the Saudis are cutting, Iranians are adding crude back onto the market. Now, the um, International Energy Agency, the IEA report, actually shows Iranian figures much higher. And we know that Iran nearly, I mean, China is basically the exclusive buyer of that crude and they are getting that at a discount. So um, China is most likely stockpiling. They have so much crude available to them and their economy just is not rip roaring enough. 
to be consuming this at the way it's the way they say they're consuming it, the way the the demand is. And I know that IEA and everyone talks about Chinese demand and the oil market report. I'll just read this. The first sentence says, uh, this is from September 13th. IEA's oil market report says, quote, world oil demand remains on track to grow 2.2 million barrels a day in 2023 to 101.8 million barrels a day, led by resurgent Chinese consumption, jet fuel, and petrochemical feedstocks. So that's... Um, you know, 102 million barrels a day, it, we're looking at record demand. That's great. Um, but there's a lot of things behind that and unpacking that. And when you look at U.S. demand, um, we actually have not recovered our vehicle miles traveled. Our, we're not back to pre-COVID levels on vehicle miles traveled. We dropped significantly during COVID and it's come back and it's coming back, but it's not at what it was. And so within the IA report, they talk about, um, I don't love all the charts, but they talk about you know, GDP growth in China and what their oil demand looks like. And then they talk about this work from home and what this has done to actual oil demand and how it has curbed the days of work from home in the U.S. and in Europe, but more specifically in the U.S., how that has curbed um, typical gasoline demand. And I think that is something that is something really interesting to point out, but it also it's more interesting in the context of you do have, you still have a lot of folks working from home at least a couple days a week. Um, you don't have everyone back into the office. There, you know, we've talked about before the commercial real estate implications, lots of knock on huge imp impacts to that, but oil is certainly one of them. And so when people are not going back into the office, they're driving, but they're not driving in the same ways that they were. So that everyday demand that they were having, they weren't. And then I think as the econ, as you have these oil high oil prices, if you have persistent inflation, if you as you have high food in prices, we're getting to the point where this stuff, the consumer is going to start shedding things off. And that discretionary stuff, that that the vacations, the stuff that they were driving to, going to Black Hills, going to South Dakota, you know, whatever it is, the things that I went to and saw a million people at this summer, whatever it is that people are doing on, with that discretionary income, that's going to slow. That's going to slow because we have, you know, September, people are going back to school. It's going to slow because we have winter. And it's also going to slow because you have unseasonably high oil, gasoline, and diesel prices. You never have them this high at this time of year. And if you look back, we're looking at the levels we saw in 2008 um, on diesel prices. That it's just not sustainable. And then you have all these other high costs. You have student loans having to, re, you know, student loan repayment. You have rising credit card debt. And so you just don't have this healthy consumer. And you're seeing that within, you're seeing this in the dollar stores. You're seeing this in all these, you know, earnings calls of these stores. You're seeing restoration hardware. Holy crap. Um, their sales are down. So, I mean, these are, I mean, that's your high-end consumer, but you're seeing it from your low end to your high end, the slowdown. And so those prices are weighing in. And I think that we have to be very careful in thinking about the resiliency of this demand, particularly in the U.S. Because when, when you want transparent data and you want to look at the biggest consuming market for oil and gas, it is, it is the U.S. Because we have a 20 million barrel day, you know, refined product demand market for both uh, crude oil and, and product and net gas liquids. And that's a lot of crude oil. So it's 20 million barrels a day. That's, that's, you know, 20% of global oil demand. And that means that if we move, you know, other countries likely moving as well. And if you're thinking about Europe and you're listening to commentary and analysis on that, you know, Europe is, is going to trend downward and be softer. We're, we are seeing real recession factors in Europe, in Germany, um, in France, across the board, and they already have higher prices than we do. Um, they have, um, they're trying to enforce the energy transition faster than we are. We are doing it very hard and very fast, especially in states like New York and California. Uh, but regardless of that, you're, you're seeing that slow down. And then countries that consume this uh, crude oil 
for if you're consuming crude oil from a power standpoint, that's a real problem, especially when prices are up. So countries like Pakistan that are already having, you know, a developing country that's already a mess economically um, is having power outages but can't afford this crude oil. Um, it, if they're using it for power, that is a huge problem. And so I think we're seeing energy, we're still seeing energy crises across the board, whether it's crude oil, whether it's natural gas, and same countries are seeing uh, prices with food as well. And, and then you just think about the knock-on impact. So we talk about we talk about oil price inflation, and what uh, I'm not uh, not really liking today is this short, snippy comments of like, yes, it can go higher. It can absolutely go higher, but typically when we're at levels like this, it breaks. And um, we, I, I just, the health of the consumer in the U.S. is a problem. The health of the consumer more broadly, the health of the global economy is a problem. It does not look great. Hasn't looked great in months. Um, so the demand side isn't what's there. Now, the demand side has been really resilient because all the stuff I just said, that the ability to work from home, the flexibility from working from home, the being able to not go to the office Mondays and Fridays, that's allowed people to drive around. That's allowed people, they drive to the grocery stores during the day. They, they're they able to take ample vacations. That's allowed for ample consumer demand from a just a driving standpoint and a jet fuel standpoint. And I think as the consumer in the U.S. and globally, this starts weighing on them and these prices go up. And when you really start seeing this on, on airlines, that's going to be a problem. And so we're going to see that slow down. But the, there are significant other knock-on impacts to this, and that is that freight costs, right? So your ability to ship things, that those costs go up. Um, the, whether you're, if you're putting this on a diesel truck, those costs go up. If you're putting stuff on a diesel ship, these costs go up. Um, airlines go up. All, this, all the costs to move this stuff goes up, and that impacts the, these impact businesses and particularly small businesses. Um, and so we are, and we're already seeing small, <clears throat> we're just seeing small businesses get really impacted by overall inflation in general. So I think adding $92, $93 oil prices and potentially $100 WTI prices is it could potentially be a recipe for disaster. The question is, how long does it stay here and does it come back down quickly? Now, we know that the Strategic Petroleum Reserve uh, was used as a nice little uh, political piggy bank last year by the Biden administration, used quite at the end of, especially right toward midterms, really making sure that, you know, the SPR was being used in its full capacity to lower prices, which it's not supposed to be used for. So the, the, um, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is supposed to be used for when you actually have a supply shortfall. You would technically say that this price back now, we are at a supply shortfall. Before, it wasn't necessarily, I mean, w prices were going higher, but now when you really need it um, and you don't have it, and that that is that in and of itself, not having the SPR is something that's probably going to help keep prices higher in addition to the ongoing war in Ukraine and all this geopolitical volatility, um, and if the Saudis continue to maintain these cuts. And we'll talk about the Saudi oil minister's comments in just a second. But I, I think you ju you just can't discount the inflationary impacts and the knock-on impacts of these of these price spikes, and then how long how long they can last and how long they're in the system, and and the knock-on impacts they have on everything that that oil and gas impacts from um, from electricity prices to transportation costs um, to eventually to food. Okay, so Mike Worth's comments were interesting um, in that you know they were they were calm comments, but the way he said it was basically yes, he could see oil prices going to 100. Obviously, as I said, I think that helps the market move it higher. You had a lot of folks sitting outside of the market, or sitting outside of trading oil, so now they're back in, particularly hedge funds. Um, now, the Arab news. Uh, I think there's a couple different ways. Last night, when I was watching the market, um, late late last night, there was a lot of talk on Bloomberg on the expectations of what the Saudi oil minister could say and really thinking, you know, he could potentially speak a long time and move the market. 
I have not found the full speech. I don't know actually how long he spoke. Um, I'm a little frustrated with that. Um, but um, from the what I've gathered from a couple different sources, there's some different color on this. And Arab News says that, you know, quote, and this is not him talking, but this is the Arab, Arab News saying, Saudi oil minister, in quote, uh, Prince Abdul, uh, Abdulaziz bin Salman on Monday said the whole world should focus on energy security. So their whole focus on this article, um, this very short article, is that he he's pushing on energy security. Um, so they continue, quote, speaking at the World Petroleum Congress in Canada, he described the conduct of the organization of the petroleum exporting countries as, in, this is in quote, benign, and likened its approach to central banks around the world making decisions to fight um, rising inflation, end quote. I think that's that's really important to think about is that, so he's likening this, basically saying these guys aren't, you know, we're not evil, we're, we're doing the same thing that the Fed is doing of raising rates. And what's interesting to me is that the, the comments and the color, if you're Googling this and seeing these, these quotes, he also says that the, they say, quote, the jury's still out. Um, this is the fundamental issue, um, the jury's still out. And he's talking about Chinese demand. So essentially what he's saying is that you know, just like the Fed, they're um, cutting output and the Fed is raising rates when they have inflation or if they have a, you know, if disinflation or, or they see the economy turning the, around in a, the different direction that they would lower rates and they would try to boost the economy. And he's saying the essentially, you know, likening this the same way is that we're trying to stabilize oil prices and we're trying to ensure energy security. So we're cutting output. Now, I think that's very interesting to think about because it means, and as I've said from the very beginning, when your economy is in the doldrums and w there's there's nothing in the U.S. economy or the global economy, despite the resilient consumer, that is definitely a, a these are tailwinds that we still have from for from stimulus measures, from uh, massive amounts of twenty seven trillion dollars of, of economic and fiscal stimulus uh that we've had in the system, monitoring fiscal stimulus that we've had in the system, these lags, these hangovers that we've had of the stimulus, and the uh, these consumers that are still putting are putting spending on credit cards are still going out and about and are the really this last hurrah and this massive uh, this pent up demand from travel that is certainly when you tell people they have to be, stay in their homes in, in China when all last year you had people confined to their you know their apartments for up to three months in places like Shanghai um, over three months in places like um, in the province of Xinjiang yes there's going to be pent-up demand especially in internally within China to travel we haven't seen that externally yet but that pent-up demand in and of itself that's still we're still seeing that that those bits of it now in addition to all that that helped lead to inflation and now we have all this spewing to the system so my point is that the saudi oil minister you know he's saying that he's um talking about energy security and acting like the fed now he's he was cutting though and we know this any any smart analyst knows that he was cutting into a deteriorating oil market environment knowing that the chinese economy doesn't look great and so the fact that he's pointing this out and saying the jury's still out on chinese demand means that he was getting ahead of this now certainly he's made the comments about traders and fixing the short sellers. And so he was trying to firm up the market. The whole point of the Saudis doing this is that they want to firm up the oil market. They want to make sure folks are not shorting crude oil and they want to get the market back in line. So they pulled barrels off and they're trying to get the market back in line and they want 80 plus dollar oil. That's what they're doing right here. But they're not, you don't cut output unless you think the market, in, unless this is like we have way too much supply um, and we don't have enough demand. I mean, it's supply and demand. So if we're cutting output, we think we have too much supply for the given demand. And if demand growth is rising to the extent that everybody says it's just going bananas and gangbusters, 
I assume that they would think that if that if that was continuing, that we wouldn't really have a problem, that that demand would absorb the supply. But obviously, that's not the case. And so when we think about the supply side, you know, we see Brazil coming up. We see Canada ri production rising. U.S. production is at 12, over 12.8 million barrels per day. U.S. production is nearing our pre-COVID levels. This is a massive gift to U.S. shale producers. Chris Wright was on last call on Friday night, and, um, you know, Brian Sullivan did not give him enough time to talk, but he pointed out very, very clearly, which is what's happening across the board, is he says, well, are U.S. producers going to produce more? And he says, hey, and he told Brian, hey, they're not going to produce more because they're not given the signals that they're not given the money. They're not given the investment. The private operators are pulling back and they do not have the capital or the access to capital to just, you know, spend. And you have a you have a government uh, and an administration in the U.S. that is so anti-domestic oil and gas that the headwinds for these operators are significant. And it is why I, I am, you know, really, pre I know I'm preaching to the choir by folks listening to this podcast, but it's why I'm so serious on pushing back on these DSG pressures, because I, I think these, even these small ones, these incremental moves are massive. When you're trying to get ahead of these ESG pressures and you're trying to put all this stuff together and you're, you have to look at the compliance mechanisms of, is it helping you or is it hurting you? Because we can, we hear across the board, I don't care where you go from the conferences. When I was talking with Dan Romito from the last podcast we had, um, the next podcast talking with Chris Atherton, the access to capital by operators and Exxon has now said this publicly and exclusively is that. ESG pressures are impacting folks' access to capital. And we know this from across the board. That's true. So when you're when we're leaning into all this ESG stuff and we're limiting the access to capital, we are exacerbating the problems we have on the supply side. And so, yes, we have $94 oil, $92 oil in the U.S. right now. And we should see operators, you know, we should see private operators hedging at these levels and, and then drilling and producing oil and in, in, in increasing output, but their ability, their one, their line of sight on the regulatory environment, those ESG pressures and their access to capital are huge infringements. And then volatility. I mean, obviously oil prices are volatile and we went from 69 in March and now we're, um, you know, now we're nearing hundred dollars a barrel. So we do have a lot of inherent volatility there, but I, you, I, I cannot underscore enough and can underscore enough line item ESG pressure, energy transition pressure. We'll get into this shortly when I'm talking about, I want to talk about the UAW auto strikes and everything going with the energy transition there. Um, how important this is, is this, uh, it's inflationary. Um, and I think all these ESG pressures, you know, the ability for oil and gas companies to drill and produce oil in the United States of America, the largest oil and gas producer in the entire world, when we are inhibiting that at these oil price levels and when we need it, especially because we haven't filled up the strategic petroleum reserve and because the Biden administration has drained the SPR piggy bank, which I apologize for not um, finishing that tangent earlier, draining the SPR piggy bank when he sold off a couple, you know, over nearly 300 million barrels a day, la million barrels last year um, at basically a million barrel a day. And now we've sold that off. And now we um, we could tap into that for the, what we have left. But we only have about 18 days of demand cover when you are looking at a 20 million barrel of demand market. So that is a problem. Now, I'm going to come back and switch gears to uh, what we were talking about um, after that rant on ESG. This is uh, World Oil. So this is their take on this. And they, they use a different quote from, from the oil minister. And he, this is their quote. Provocative, preemptive, and precaution. These three words will address how we are attending to the situation, knowing there are uncertainties coming from multiple directions. Um, 
they also say in the same article, they say the jury mentioned the jury is still out in China. And then they say on the sidelines that um, he says, quote, real numbers illustrate the markets that they need to see the real numbers before they basically make any choices. So, you know, the rhetoric we heard before the Saudis went ahead with this extended lollipop cut, which really drove the markets higher on this, the rhetoric we heard when they did the first lollipop cut was that um, they were very confident in the market and they were very confident in their, their comfortability in the market. They wanted to make OPEC bigger um, and have more members and that they, you know, were just talking confidence, confidence, confidence. And obviously, um, this they, they have to be pretty confident now that they're able to, they have been able to control and move the market to the extent they have. But they have done this at a cost, obviously, themselves. So when they're doing this million barrel day cut, that has been in place for a couple months now, um, they're getting the market tighter um, because they want to see where demand is at. And in China, obviously, um, they're allowing Russian production. Every month when you look at the OPEC report, uh, that Russian output is revised a little bit higher. Um, when you look at uh, when you look at the IEA's report, that Russian out that Russian crude exports have been remarkably resilient. They're only down a smidgen from basically pre-war levels and everything that they sent to Europe before. They're basically sending to China um, and to India right now. The product side is very interesting, and that product side, if it where they have reduced there, that is impacting the bill. That is impacting the product side of the market, which is impacting oil prices. So that is certainly having an impact. That being said, now that oil prices are as high as they are, we are seeing, you know, Iran. We just did a. The U.S. just did a deal with Iran to um, give them six billion dollars of of. We had this money frozen, oil money frozen, and exchanged for. We gave them six billion dollars, and we traded. Um, prisoner. We did a prisoner swap. Um, that being said, Iran export or producing over 3 million barrels a day, exporting probably well north of a million and a half barrels a day to China, if not 2 million barrels a day. That is a lot of crude oil that they're exporting to China, probably at a discount, but they are uh, they are receiving a lot of money from this. Um, the ability to increase output, to export it to China, this is really putting Iran in a very good position where they don't care about, they, don't, they no longer care about um, the, the West pressuring them on on their nuclear capacities and what they're doing there. So that's a potential issue on, on the geopolitical side that can also keep oil prices up, um, even though they're increasing output. Um, and we are seeing the ability for all these other countries to basically increase output and supplant. Um, and uh, how long the Saudis will go along with this is is a bit of a question mark. So yes, they want to get the market realigned. Yes, they want to get st stability in prices. Yes, they want to get some footing. I think they probably saw the writing on the wall for China. They saw the surge in production from elsewhere. And uh, to make it look like they have a lot of continuity they went ahead and cut output. That's certainly a plausibility. I don't, this is, I do not think these prices are demand driven. I think they're supply driven, um, largely supply driven by cutting these supplies. And I think that the demand, uh, we're going to see how resilient it is at these price levels. Um, and it has been remarkably resilient, but I do think this is the last hurrah of that sort of pent up driving post COVID everything. And now we're starting to see the, the real impacts of these inflationary pressures in addition to another ramp up in high oil prices. And, you know, all this stuff sort of works until it doesn't. So, you know, you can keep with high oil prices as long as natural gas prices are lower. Now, if natural gas prices ramp up and you continue to have these this, these uh, very high grain prices that we're seeing or these grain issues, Nigeria is having a serious issue on, with, with inflation. They're having a serious issue with um, access to electricity, with power generation. They're having a serious issue with um, access to food and food inflation. So I mentioned that with Pakistan. You're seeing this in South Africa. So, you know, and but we talk about Europe. Now, if 
if we have a spike in natural gas prices over the course of the winter, this is all going to start, this is all going to be a mess. Um, and then you could continue to see um, pressure on oil prices because if they don't have enough natural gas supplies. Now they say they're stored, but I think we, we need to keep that in mind. And I will point out that um, I did see on Tellurian's comments, which they put their, their little note out every so they put the little note out, and this is my back to my ESG rant on pushing back on the ESG thing, and I think this is important, is because I've made this comment that if you are following uh, investments out of, if you're following investments from European companies investing in the Middle East, it's massive, right? European oil and gas companies, even though they're, they have constraints on the, how much money they can spend and, and what they're able to do um, because of the because of all their energy transition and ESG pressures um, that impact them down the pipeline, they're still investing massively. You're seeing Total Energies invest $27 billion in Iraq, which they'll probably never get out. You're seeing Exxon finally finally get their exit deal with Iraq. Um, but the point is, is that I've made this comment a lot about Europe, is that you know when I was in, um, in, in February, or sorry, or March of this year, when I was at the Colorado School of Vines, they had a responsible natural gas forum, or resp they called it responsible gas, whatever they wanted that to mean. And there was so much talk about measuring our gas here, measuring the methane emissions of our gas and having these certified clean molecules out of Colorado, which I didn't think Colorado was competitive at all because we're so far from the market um, and because all the molecules that are closer to the Gulf Co Coast um, are going to get exported. And that's the market's the market. Um, so, you know, but that's the talk. And then there were folks, even <clears throat> somebody from the EU had even chimed in and said, yes, we want these certified. We want the U.S. to have certified green, you know, molecules that we're going to import if we're going to import this from the U.S. Now, they do not have those standards on the rest of the world. They, Europe is certainly not. Europe is still buying LNG cargoes, liquefied natural gas from Russia. They are still buying refined product from Russia. And I can, you can sure as hell bet that they do not have green methane, you know, measurement certifications on those LNG cargoes or that crude. So the fact that the U.S. would even be okay with complying at all and the state of Colorado leaning into that is a, it's total BS and it's wrong because we need to be pushing and, and acknowledging to the world that we need more oil and gas. Yes, can we do it better? Absolutely. But the problem is you're not necessarily, you have to also talk about you're not necessarily going to get favored. You can talk about that, but you may not get favored. You may reduce your methane emissions. You may get certified, but you may not get favored. And I think the real important point here is that, and this is why I bring this up, is that this note from, um, and I haven't got to dive into this, but this note is from Tellurian, and they say, um, this is their quote, they say that Valero also commented, European companies are reluctant to sign 20-year supply deals due to EU decarbonization targets. And they say that, um, uh, in a second, I'll get to the ConocoPhillips comment, but I've been talking about this a lot about I, I'm, through the course of the last year or so when people say, you know, great, the LNG market looks awesome. You know, the U.S. is going to be export all this LNG. Yes, that's wonderful. And the market, the, the long term nature of the market is telling you that gas demand is very, very real. It's going to be here for a really long time. And if you like ConocoPhillips and other companies, they're betting on it, right? This says that ConocoPhillips secured a um, regasification capacity for 15 years, um, LNG terminal in the Netherlands starting in September of 2031. So companies are investing in this for the long term. But the point of Europe on their decarbonization efforts being hesitant to do anything, we've seen that. I, if you are talking to folks on the LNG side or the gas side, Europe has been reluctant to sign long-term contracts with the U.S. because it's 
because it's a it's a hydrocarbon. Um, I won't even call it a fossil fuel. I've told you guys that, but they won't sign these long-term contracts because this is natural gas, and they don't want they don't want natural gas. Now they don't really have any alternative or any other choice. So we're looking at the situation where we want to do business with Europe. We want to do business with, um, and we want to, we we probably have the most humanitarian molecule um, on the planet, and we're producing this in a in a democratic country with rule of law to where you actually have companies that are willingly and voluntarily working and reducing their methane emissions, and yet we can't get Europe to sign on to this. That This is a huge problem that needs to be addressed on an educational basis, needs to be addressed on a political basis, and we need to be working on getting our, our these molecules exported out of the U.S. Because the... Europe is going to get these molecules from, they're getting, they're, they are getting them from Russia. They're going to continue to get them from the Middle East, and they're going to get them from Africa. And those don't have any certification, which is just ridiculous. So that is a that is a huge problem, and just a point I'm making on when we talk about all the stuff we're doing on the certification and everything, you have to ask, what is the, I'm not saying not to do it. I'm saying, what is the point? And is it really to help the business, or is it to put them out of business? And to this point, I, for, for Europe, they're not, this is, this has not helped them um, in getting more of this. There, the, there has continued to be pushback from Europe um, on their decarbonization efforts and the ability to accept more, um, more LNG from the US. Now, that being said, I think this is a little tricky because you, in the context of seeing these really high oil prices um, and talking about demand, we do know that demand this year is very high. And we know that we've hit record demand in the, we now demand, we have to be a little bit careful about that because it's always, we always look back and we revise it. So we may find that demand was a little bit lower, but um, demand, the IEA is projecting demand to be uh, over, to actually hit over 104 million barrels a day next year um, for crude oil demand globally. Um, but the point is this year we've had this, this rising demand. Um, and so that all this is, is counterintuitive to this whole decarbonization and energy transition narrative that we keep hearing about. And so I think it's really, it's, and it's really hard for the market, right? Is that you, you hear, um, the demand is really high. You hear all the talk about the energy transition. You hear all the decarbonization efforts that are in place. Um, and this gets me to the point of the autos that I want to talk about is the UAW auto workers. Um, where we're at and what's going on on the auto side is that um, they're at the, they are right in the crux of this energy transition um, quagmire of what's going on, of exactly where there's a lot of talk, there's a lot of rhetoric, there's a lot of hype, there's a lot of push to invest in electric vehicles, and yet the demand is not on electric vehicles. The demand in the U.S. is on, um, and actually globally, uh, maybe not for Europe, um, but the U.S. particularly, the demand on for autos is uh, trucks and SUVs. So the United Auto Work, UAW, United Auto Workers Union, that guy's getting famous um, uh, that's running that. He, so he uh, has led the United Auto Workers Union um, to, to strike, which they did as of Friday. They did that as of last week. They've been now on strike for four days. And you have, uh, you have GM and other auto manufacturers, auto manufacturers in Detroit that are being impacted by this. I think it's the Chevy Colorado that's that's being impacted in terms of production. Um, it's also Jeep. Um, so these are these are electric vehicles. And but the point I'll get to this in a point where electric vehicles stand in this. Um, part of this is that they say that they are um, they're striking because they are concerned about where does where is the state of the business going with electric vehicles. And you do see Joe Biden has weighed in personally on this. Um, I think this is a little this is interesting to me because actually I actually heard somebody um, on Bloomberg today talk about. 
um, how incompetent Joe Biden was. And I was impressed that I heard this on Bloomberg um, in commentary um, that, he, that Joe Biden was actually delusional as well. Um, and I think in this case, I think he's, this, is, this is very pertinent. I do think the, the Biden administration, this is fascinating that Biden has continued to weigh in on this debate, saying he is the most pro-labor union president that we've ever had. And we already have a very tight labor market. We already have wage price pressures across the board. So in addition to having high oil prices and everything going on right now, we have these wage price pressures. And they don't, you know, people keep saying from an inflationary standpoint, oh, you know, it's just UPS here and it's the you know, auto workers union here and it's it's the um, it's the strike we're seeing in, in California and the writers and the actors, that's over there. Well, that seems pretty widespread to me. And what happens is it takes months for that to be in place, right? It takes months for the price, once those wages go rise, it takes months for those people to actually get that money. And then you start seeing that get through the system where it is inflationary. So what's happening, and Biden does not realize, is that, um, I, and maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, I think he's a little too old to probably be working through the nuances and tea leaves of economics on a day-to-day -day basis. But when you increase somebody's wages, it is inflationary. So the reason you have to increase their wages right now and the reason they're demanding it is because of inflation. And this administration has spent like drunken sailors, and we have a, we have a lot of fiscal um, lags that are inflationary. And that's a big problem that I've talked about. It's a big problem for the Fed. It's a big problem to have all these lags. And that all this fiscal lag in the system, despite the rate hikes that the Fed has done, are getting to the point where we're, we're having these price pressures. And we're, we still have people from that work from home or, or the, the ability to not work is still in the system because we wouldn't have the labor market we have now. We wouldn't have the ability for the labor unions to have the love that they're having and have people as interested in them as they are right now if you didn't have that in the system. So when you have a tight labor market, labor unions are not red hot. They're not doing great because people are looking for a job and that's the system. And when you now have a system where, you know, people are demanding higher wages, you know, I, you can make the argument that people need to be paid their fair share. And the Biden administration is making the argument that folks need to be pay, paid their fair share. Um, I'll come back to the energy transition thing in just a moment because they are the, the Biden administration is giving money out for these projects that they've put federal dollars to, but they're giving it out, they want to say, to entities that are favoring labor unions, right? They have to, and we're talking about massive pay. So we're talking about what the auto workers and the UAW is asking for from from these auto manufacturers, which they have made money because inflation, they passed on those inflationary things to the consumer, and we've all seen auto prices rise. We know that. Um, but they're asking for a 40% pay increase. Now, the auto companies have already come back and said they would do a 20% pay increase, but that's not enough. 40% pay increase in addition to a four-day four work week. So I don't know about you folks, but I cannot, I mean, four days a week would be a pretty wonderful work week. Um, 32 hours is what they're asking for. So in addition to a 40% pay increase, they also get a day off. And that means, so that means you're, there's four days where people, there's a whole day of things not getting built. So I can imagine how that could impact, you know, price pressures um, in terms of just building stuff. Um, so that's a problem, but the benefits are also massive. And so if you're listening to these CEOs, and yes, the CEOs have certainly increased their pay, but if you're listening to them talk, what you're hearing is the benefits are like three hundred to $400,000 per year. And this is for people who, this is a manufacturing job where you don't have to have an education. You're getting up to three hundred dollars to $400,000 per year. That is a lot. That is massively inflationary, people. Forget the debate on which side you're on and whether pay increase of 40% 40 work weeks or not. I don't, I don't like that. I think that's extremely problematic for businesses. It's 
not good for America. It's not good for the competitiveness of America and businesses wanting to come to America, business investing in America. The reason businesses typically go elsewhere or they're going to go south into states like um, southern states is where they're already seeing that is that uh, because they don't have labor unions and because they have lower labor costs. And so when you have a streamlined tax code, when you have tax incentives and when you have, um, you know, a stable and predictable environment to do business in, that's how you bring in money. And America's always been the place that even if it costs more, people invest in America. But it's these things that make it really messy because they don't know. Um, but the problem is this is all the energy transition is the crux of this because these auto manufacturers are being pressed by the government and everyone to be, they have to be building these electric vehicles. And, you know, California has put a mandate in by 2030 that you, everybody, it's only, it's only electric vehicles, which is going to destroy their grid, which is probably why they um, have, why they've continued to keep those three uh, natural gas fired power generation plants online um, because they know that they can't plug in these vehicles um, with, without, and, and take off their natural gas fired power generation at the same time. But so the, the grid won't handle, but the point is they're mandating it. We're seeing similar stuff in New York as well. And so you have this, you have this uh, future potential demand for electric vehicles that's high. And you have the com you know, have the government of the US saying that they want to increase electric vehicle consumption. The problem is the actual demand, if you go to a dealer and ask them what they're selling, they're selling internal combustion engine vehicles, they're selling trucks, they're selling SUVs. And if you live in a place like Colorado or you live in a place like Wyoming or anywhere out throughout the Rockies or Texas where it gets hot or you know the mountains where it gets cold, electric vehicles and you drive more than you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes or you have long distance, you have range anxiety and you just don't buy them. Um, so the we have some inherent issues with that. And the side of the auto side say, you know, the whole union strike is that they want to ensure that their workers have jobs. And part of the whole electric vehicle movement is they think that they are going to have less people manufacturing those jobs. Now, you heard from probably on, on TV, you probably saw some of the CEOs today saying, no, we're not reducing those jobs. We're making sure electric vehicle folks or trans, you know, the internal combustion engine folks are also going to be electric vehicle folks, et cetera. But there is a reality. There's less people. We see that in the oil field where with automation, you just see less people. Um, so this is a serious issue in terms of, um, yes, you, you can want it all you want. You can want pay raises and you can want job security and everything, but that doesn't happen. And the, I, I find it interesting in, in the case of Chevron where they're still working that out. Um, and Australia, I, I, if you were listening to some of those um, demands in terms of uh, the pay there was that it was job security. It was that even they did, they wanted job security for even contract employment. And if I'm third generation oil and gas, if you've grown up around this business, you know this is a boom and bust business. This is a commodity business. Um, and you know, really, all businesses have to you have to adapt to the environment. And so when you have to guarantee pay and wages, despite you know if if the economy corrects and we have less demand for automobiles than we did over the course of the past couple of years, the pay wages and the increases to those people, what it's going to result in is job cuts. And we're already seeing today, we're already seeing these manufacturers, these auto manufacturers saying they are going to have job cuts because of this. And they've already said, hey, we've had to deal with the supply chain bottlenecks of, of during and over the course of, of COVID and what's happened across the globe. So we're prepared for this. So the reality is, is that companies like Tesla 
and who are, you know, you can talk about them being, whether that's electric vehicle or it's Tesla and there's a whole brand to that. But Tesla is uh, competing in the space. They are dropping the price of their electric vehicle. This brings us to China, which is extremely important. Can't leave them out. Um, so they're competitively dropping the price of their electric vehicle. Um, they did this in response to very cheap Chinese prices as well, but they've been dropping it because they want to they want to push everybody else out of the market. Um, and so electric, the Lightning F-150, they're having to drop those prices. So already these, these vehicles aren't making money. They're expensive to produce, and they're dropping these prices to incentivize people to buy them. Um, Tesla's doing this, and Tesla's going to win here because they are not unionized, and um, they're going to get the they're going to get the business. And so when you hurt these companies by pushing these companies to unionize, I think it's really interesting that the administration is as pro-union and also pro-energy transition because they compete. Those the, these two things compete with each other. Um, and uh, the, you just you're not letting the market decide. You're not letting people decide what they want to buy. Um, and there was somebody on last call that was saying, "Oh, you know, the market isn't you know isn't telling people what to buy." Um, um, last call, they were also talking about Trump's interview because he was saying, "Hey, we got to let people decide if they want internal combustion engine or electric vehicle." And somebody said, "Oh, we're not doing that." Well, uh, California, if you're mandating that you have to be electric vehicles by 2030, you are telling them that. And at least Brian, Brian Sullivan made that comment as well. So that is extremely important. Now, the last bit I will say on China, two things to comment on are, are the, um, you know, if we're talking about the question marks of Chinese demand, when we talk about these red hot sizzling oil prices, we really do have to be careful about Chinese demand because the IEA um, and OPEC figures and anything else you're looking at, they just don't match up. Um, and so we know they've had to do some stockpiling. Um, and we also just know that he, the sentiment around China is extremely poor. And we're seeing a really mixed bag. Whether you're talking, if you, if you know of anyone who's went to China recently, please ask them you know, what they see, what's going on. What you hear on the market is a lot of people on the tech side come back and they say, you know, it's pretty good. But I've heard people say that the business sentiment is just absolutely horrible, that it's much, much worse and much more palpable than people realize. And that means, aside from writing people checks and just getting them to spend, it's going to be really hard to get this economy really revving. That being said, that doesn't mean they are not investing. That, that doesn't mean that people are not spending. That doesn't mean people with money that have saved money are not out there on their leisure activity spending. And that does bode well for gasoline demand and for driving around the China. And it's a huge country. So certainly we would see that pent up demand. Now, the question is how long does that pent up demand last and how sustainable is that? And if that softens, what does that look like if you don't have, you know, if you don't have this offset with diesel demand from building buildings and everything. Um, and lastly, I will point out, I had to say this in, um, <clears throat> when I talked about the Barbie movie, which I didn't like at all. Um, but when I talked about that with, and I listened to the CEO of Mattel talking about that map, and that, you know, the, the map that they showed for a really long time that was controversial, and yet the CEO was saying, hey, basically, we did do this map for China. Um, and they had these, like, dashed crayon lines. And, you know, China's known for the nine-dash line map. And the reason I say this is because they put out a new map. Um, and I just think this is interesting to point out. So they put out a new map, and it's really made people angry. They put this out in August. This is their, their 2023 edition. Now, I have not been able to compare their edition of what their Chinese previous edition. But I, if you Google this and you bring this up, you'll notice that there's a couple points on, it's actually on India, on the Indian side, and on the Russian side, where they've actually extended out their territory a bit. But really, it's in the water where people have been upset. And that is because they put 10, dash, 10 dashes. And the nine dashes from what I've seen, all the maps I've seen, are they're much longer, right? And they don't go all the way around into Taiwan. They're kind of much more squishy lines. 
Now they've added 10 dashes and these dashes go now up and around Taiwan. Um, so basically they're just saying, hey, this is ours. And um, there's that is something that I know there's so much debate on the, the Taiwan question and, and military activity. And there's so much volatility right now just within China and their own leadership in terms of um, people missing. Um, when we talk about home prices and we talk about um, Country Garden and we talk about Evergrande and these, these big property developers that are missing payments, now the country is going after, um, they're actually, they're actually going, law enforcement is going after folks with an Evergrande. They call this uh, their justice system, but you know that's just the government probably going after them to solve this in another angle. And they have an anti-espionage law that's going on as well. And um, so you have all these things that are impacting um, business sentiment, whether it's a map, whether it's the anti-espionage law, whether it's consultants being um, looked at. I mean, so there's a lot of stuff impacting overall business sentiment in addition to the business not looking good. And that is that it's just extremely important to be thinking about China both in the medium term and in the long term when we're thinking about oil demand and not again, not oil demand uh, declining and, and, and going down because we, we saw all that last week from Fatih Barol, um, the head of the IEA, who put in his uh, peak oil demand commentary within the Financial Times, which I didn't even mention because it's not worth it because he's talking that you know fossil fuels are going to decline their demand. They're going to peak uh, very this decade, and then they're going to decline. Um, you had the oil minister of the, you had the OPEC oil minister come out and say that that's ridiculous. Um, and he, the oil minister is not exactly wrong. That is ridiculous. The, and the reason I'm pointing this out and want to close on this point is that peak oil demand does not mean declining oil demand. Um, we keep thinking about this. People always characterize this as sun setting as then the sun coming down. Um, but that sun could be up there for a really, really long time. And I, I do think it will be. So y you could peak at any point. It, Picking that peak is, is less relevant than thinking about where does the demand growth come from? Do we have demand growth or do we just hang out this 100 million barrel a day market? And that means that it's that understanding of that and getting folks and market participants and um, industry and folks outside the industry and investors to really appreciate that so that we continue investing in this business so that we continue to have 100 million barrels a day of product and supply on the market so that we don't have energy crises and shortfalls and that, that people can consume and live uh, and businesses can grow and thrive. Um, and with that, thank you guys so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Um, I will keep you updated on these sizzling hot oil prices. And uh, we have Chris Atherton, which will be dropping next, which is another fantastic podcast. Um, going forward, we are going to be doing a, a two podcasts a month cadence kind of what I've been doing anyways, even though I call it weekly, but we'll be doing two, two podcasts a month. I will be doing the short videos, I'm um, promoting them, and I will be doing monthly sponsorships for the podcast as well. Super pumped about it, really looking forward to it, and um, have a slug of awesome guests coming up. So talk to you soon, folks. Have a wonderful week. Bye.